Tonight, what I have to share with you is a presentation full of some pretty extraordinary facts concerning the Word of God, the Bible. And as Pastor Ben had just shared, this is titled The Historical Reliability of the Bible. And this actually a series of messages that I've broken up into three different presentations. I'm going to get a chance to share two of those three with you. Tonight is going to be about the historical reliability of the Old Testament. And then Sunday morning, which I consider to be more of the cream of the crop, is the historical reliability of the New Testament. And if you're interested in the third presentation, I'd be happy to share my notes with you. It's about the canon of Scripture and how we've come to receive the Bible as we know it today. Now, as we begin, what I'd like to do uh, for you tonight is actually just have you simply sit back and just soak in the information. It's engaging. It's extraordinary, surprisingly enough, as readily available as this information is. Uh, It's hidden, uh, except for a few major books. More and more over the last 10 years, it's becoming uh, more on the surface. But a lot of people don't realize just how reliable uh, our Bible is. And it can really encourage your faith. And I want to make a few promises to you tonight. Number one, as you soak this in, it's going to strengthen and encourage your faith in the Word of God. And how the Lord has wonderfully preserved it, just as we'd expect, considering the fact that it is His Word. There's no other book like it in the world that has the credentials that the Word of God does. Secondly, I think as you soak this in, it's going to bring a fresh desire in your own devotional life to read the Word of God, understanding them from a new perspective, that the Bible isn't just a spiritual book, but it's an objective book with historical account. The things about Jesus, our Lord, are true. They were recorded with accuracy. When he told a man to reach out his hand and it was withered and then it became unwithered, that was a historical account, not just a crazy event that a religious book claimed. But last of all, and Pastor Ben mentioned this, it will transform your confidence when you're evangelizing with other people. Questions that they have, it's going to give you the ability to relate the scriptures objectively to those who are critical of its content. And so this presentation has been a huge blessing in my life. I know it's been a blessing whenever I've had the opportunity to share it with others, and I hope that you guys are going to be blessed by it tonight. Let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to dig in. Isaac Freeman, I see you texting me. Knock it off. All right. Lord, we do love you, and we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have tonight to kind of step outside the box and take a look at it, to see, Lord, how you have preserved it so wonderfully and incredibly. I pray, Lord, also that as we look at the data, it wouldn't just be static and uh, stoic as it were, but it would be dynamic, it would be living. It would give us a great and new love, Lord, for you. I pray that you would forgive us of our sins tonight so that we can approach you this evening with a clear conscience. Lord, we thank you for your love and your redemption and your resurrection. And that's why we gather here. It's because you're alive and uh, you want to speak to us. So Lord, I pray that you'd help me to speak with clarity and allow you, Lord, to do the work that you want to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. All right, if you will, I'd like you to step into the shoes of an unnamed Old Testament character with me for just a moment. There you are standing by the Jordan River. It's a beautiful day. It's an exciting day. You've joined dozens of other prophets in the task of building a residence to do ministry out of. You feel the sun on your back, and there's a cool breeze kind of blowing on your skin, and the calming sound of the Jordan River is flowing right behind you. With one hand, you're positioning a beautiful iron head axe over your shoulder, 
while with the other hand, you're rubbing it across the bark of a large tree to examine its strength. And you think to yourself, this one will do. And then you position your legs firmly, you grip the ax, and with both hands, you begin to swing it into the tree. And all around you, you hear the sound of others just like you chopping away. The sharp thud of the ax head striking the wood was almost rhythmic as you hear it going back and forth between all the others who are chopping down their beams of wood. But then something goes wrong. As you wind up to take your next big swing, you're suddenly thrown off balance. The ax that you're swinging feels light as a feather, and behind you, you hear a splash in the water. And as you regain your balance, in bewilderment, you look at your ax, and the ax head has flown off. And you realize that the splash of water behind you was the ax head diving into the depths of the Jordan River. To make matters worse, this is not your ax. You're borrowing it with the sure promise to bring it back to its owner who relies on it daily for his family. To buy a new one was too expensive. You couldn't afford it. You know the family couldn't afford it. And now you're useless in doing your part in helping build this residence. You're embarrassed as to kind of what's become and standing around by the tree. You feel this deep sense of failure and frustration, but in the distance, you see your master, your mentor, Elijah, the prophet of Israel. And so you cry out to him, alas, master, the ax said that I borrowed is plunged into the depths of the Jordan, you sign to say embarrassingly. What should I do? And so Elijah, the prophet, sees your dismay and he asks you, where did it fall? You're not entirely sure. So you kind of point in the general direction in the river, somewhere over there. More importantly, you're suddenly very curious about what Elijah the prophet was gonna do. God was especially with this man and you've heard of the many unusual miracles that the Lord has done through him. So as Elijah examines the water, he then turns to the tree that you were whacking at just a moment ago. He cuts a stick off the tree and then he throws it into the Jordan. What in the world is Elijah doing? This doesn't make any sense. But before you could think too hard about it, you notice Elijah is looking at something in the Jordan River. And so you follow the stare of his eyes and whoa, you see your ax head floating on top of the Jordan River, which had just been plunged to the bottom just a few minutes ago. And then you hear Elijah say to you, go on, pick it up. And so you begin to walk into the Jordan River. The water's cold. You put your hands under the ax head as it floats on the water. And as you pick it up, you half expect it to be light like a hollow piece of wood, but it's as heavy as a dense stone. And in complete amazement, you're speechless as you're carrying this weighted ax head out of the water. And you watch as Elijah continues his way down the banks of the river to observe everyone's work. Can you imagine that day? It would have been extraordinary to experience something like this. And you learned an important lesson. There's nothing too hard for the God of Israel, but perhaps even more so, there's nothing too small or too trivial for God to take notice of and show forth his glory, even if it's you plunging an ax head into the depths of the river. Now, this is an account that you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It's a miraculous account with an unusual miracle that took place about 3,000 years ago. And there's hundreds of accounts just like this in the Old Testament that took place millenniums ago. The 10 plagues of Egypt, Moses parting the Red Sea and Israel walking across the dry ground. The walls of Jericho falling down. Joshua praying for the sun to stand still while they pursued the enemy. 
supernatural strength of Samson who pushed two pillars and knocked down an entire temple on the Philistines, the slaying of Goliath by the young boy named David, and the list goes on and on and on. And as we look at these accounts, eventually you have to ask, were the authors of these accounts recording these things accurately? Are they historical? Did they actually happen this way? How do we know? What indicators do we have? Is there adequate evidence for the claims that the Old Testament speaks of in the various miraculous events of the Word of God? And if so, how do we know that these accounts have been copied and transcribed accurately over the last three to 4,000 years? 6,000 years, actually. It's a long time. Maybe to sum it up in one more simple question, is the Old Testament historically reliable? Is the Old Testament historically reliable? Now, before we can answer that loaded question, we need to define some terms so we know exactly what we're talking about. First, we need to know what the scope of the Old Testament is. Second, we need to further define what we mean by historical reliability. And then thirdly, we have to understand why it is crucial that the Old Testament is historically reliable in regards to why we believe in it, in our faith. So let's start by defining the scope of the Old Testament. In our Bibles, there's 39 books that shape the canon of the Old Testament scriptures, which are primarily structured categorically, not chronologically. I don't know if you've read through the whole Bible before or even read through the Old Testament, but can really screw you up because you assume it's chronological and then you're reading Nehemiah and realizing, holy cow, this is at the beginning of the Old Testament, but it's really taking place towards the end, right before Jesus would come. So this is categorical sections. And we're going to say that there's five different sections, okay? There's the law, there's history, poetry, and then major prophets and minor prophets. 39 total books in the canon. Now, the breadth of these 39 books was written approximately by 25 different authors, most of which were prophets and some are priests or historians and scribes. And with that, the Old Testament was written across a time span of about 3,500 years. It's a lot of history to cover, written between 4,000 BC and 400 BC. Now, most notably, the content and the context of the Old Testament is concerning the nation of Israel how it was birthed through Abraham by the promise of God, redeemed out of Egypt with Moses, given the promised land under Joshua, made a kingdom under King Saul and King David and Solomon, ultimately scattered and exiled to other nations because of their wickedness, and then ultimately promised a Messiah who would be the prophet, priest, and the king to save them from their sin. That right there is the scope of the Old Testament in a nutshell. Is this scope of work, historically reliable? That's the question we want to answer tonight. Now, the second thing that we have to define is what we mean by historical reliability. How do we further define this so we can understand what we're really after in this presentation? Now, what's important in our discussion on the historical reliability of the Bible is to know what we are not talking about. We are not talking about the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures as by the Holy Spirit. We're also not talking about the inerrancy of the word of God. We do believe in those things. Those are tenets of our faith as believers, but that is not what historical reliability is about. What we mean by this, strictly speaking, is the content itself as to whether or not what we have in our Bibles is objective and historically verifiable. 
like to help illustrate this and kind of run through a simple exercise with you because I think that all of us intuitively know what is historically verifiable and reliable and what is not. And, and I'd like to get a little interaction if you don't mind. George Washington as the first president of the United States, is that a historically reliable fact? Yes or no? Throw it out there. How do you know this? Well, what are your indicators? History books, so there's manuscripts. What else? Eyewitnesses. People knew this guy. What was that? Oh, he's on the penny. There you go. Okay, so there's external data that shows that he existed. Okay. How about this, the Holocaust? Is that true? Verifiable in history? There's some that say there isn't. It's not. But they're fools because we see it. We see the verifiable data that we have. There's eyewitnesses. There's, there's manuscripts. There's actual testimonies. Photographs. Very good. Well, how about the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers? I think we all remember where we were when that happened, don't we? You know, it was a real event. It's historically verifiable and reliable. All these things have these various issues in common, which you guys have all kind of shouted out. Eyewitnesses, real locations, archaeological data, documentations, uh, transcripts. How about this? Peter Pan in the Neverlands. I don't want to break anyone's heart tonight, but is that historically verifiable? <laughs> Are you sure? How about the Battle of Aslan and the Witch in Narnia? Yes or no? I'm really going to test this church tonight. I want to know what Pastor Ben's been preaching. This one could disappoint some right here. Uh, Star Wars? Absolutely not. As much as we hope, right? And what do these all have in common? The exact opposite. There's no eyewitnesses. No one's seen Peter Pan or known any of his acquaintances. It's not real locations that these places, uh, that these events took place at, right? There's no archaeological data. You're not going to find Peter Pan's dagger or find a random lightsaber in Arabia somewhere. It's not going to happen. At least not a real one. There's no documentation or transcripts that verify it, right? This is not a historically reliable event. So we, we know historical reliability when we see it. It's verifiable. We, we understand it intuitively. And so I'd like to define historical reliability this way. It's knowing for a fact that something happened in history that we can rely on. So if you're taking notes, write that down. It's knowing for a fact that something in history happened that we can rely on. Now, this brings me to the third and final thing before we dive into the data is why is it important that our Bible be historically reliable, including the Old Testament? Why is this so important? And that's because our faith has to be rooted in historical events in order for it to be objective. This can't be a fairy tale. This can't be fables. It can't be made up stuff. It has to be real, true, historical, verifiable events. Christian faith and practice without history is not objective. It's not real. Listen to what Jesus, our Lord, says in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He is walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who do not know yet who he is. And it says that he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And excuse me, I think I said this as well, he was on the road with them. He had revealed himself to them already at this, this point. Notice what Jesus our Lord did. He relied on the historical reliability of the Old Testament 
as grounds for him fulfilling prophecy. If the Old Testament was not real, if it was not historically reliable, if these events and these prophecies were not accurate, then what grounds does Jesus have in fulfilling prophecy? Even more, if the Old Testament is not historically reliable, then the tenets of the New Testament cannot be reliable either because our Christian faith is built on top of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Just read the book of Hebrews. How can we trust the Bible in spiritual matters if we can't trust it in earthly matters? In fact, one of the New Testament authors actually tells us to walk away from the faith if our faith is not based and rooted in objective history. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says about the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ is not risen, and then I inserted there historically, you'll see, because that's what he means. If Christ is not risen historically, objectively, truly in history, physically, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And we're found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. And if Christ is not risen, again, he's speaking historically, your faith is pointless and you are still in your sins. You guys see the need to understand that our faith has to be historical. This is what makes Christianity the only religion that's actually historical. Every other faith is not built on anything verifiable, historical, or objective. So with that understood, with understanding the scope of the work, defining historical reliability, and why it's so important, let's dig into the data, and I think you're going to be blown away by this. The historical reliability of any ancient document is proven by three substantial tests, and these are not tests that I've made up. These are three tests that historians and scholars use to determine whether or not a document should be considered historically reliable. The first test is titled the bibliographical test. And what this test does, it looks at the documents and the manuscripts to see how many there are and how old they are, whether or not there could be any transcribing errors from the original manuscript to the copies. The second test that they run is known as the internal test. This test reads the documents and looks for eyewitnesses, traditions, features that would prove it's telling the truth. And then the last test is the external test. This test looks outside of the document itself into other documents of its era, archaeological data, things that would show that there's other people that wrote about the same events. It's historical. You read about Star Wars, it pretty much just comes from George Lucas, right? There's no outside source for Star Wars, but that's not true for real history. These tests are used on every document of history, not just the Bible, without exception. And here's the clincher. In order for a document to be considered historically reliable, it must pass all three tests without failure. It can't just pass two, it must pass all three. Here's a visual diagram of how this works. You have an ancient document, it's in question, is it historically reliable? So they run it through the bibliographic test, then the internal test, then the external test, and if it passes all three, it's considered historically reliable. So let's go ahead and run through the data and let's start with the first test, which is known as the bibliographical test. Kind of a mouthful to say. And as a reminder, this is again, looking at the documents and manuscripts that are available. Now, before we look at how the Old Testament qualifies in this test, I think it might benefit us to first see how other writings in history have passed this test. And we're gonna look at these with more detail on Sunday morning if you're gonna be here, but the comparison chart paints a picture for us. This chart right here is 
the most popular works used in academia today, which are considered historically reliable according to scholars. I know the writing's kind of small, but you have the works of Aristotle, Tacitus, Plato, Herodotus, and you can kind of see the average manuscript count. Aristotle, we have five of his manuscripts. Tacitus, 20. I don't know how to pronounce that dude's name towards the end there. Sophilisus, okay. It's a lot, 193. How many manuscripts do we have for the Old Testament? Well, we have 12,000 plus currently. And that number keeps increasing. Here's the collections that we have of, oh, here, here's a comparison chart next to the other ones. You can't even see the sliver. By the way, I didn't pull these other ancient documents out of thin air. These are the next competing documents to the Bible. Aristotle considered historically reliable, at least bibliographically speaking. And he's only got five manuscripts to his name and the Bible has, or the Old Testament has 12 to 15,000. I threw in there the the New Testament as well, which gives you 40,000 manuscripts. Pretty significant bibliographically speaking. Here's the collections that we have of the Old Testament. The first collection of Hebrew manuscripts was made by Benjamin Kennecott in the 1700s, which was published by Oxford. It lists about 615 manuscripts. Later, a man named Giovanni de Rossi, he published a list of 731 manuscripts. In modern times, uh, in Cairo, uh, it's known as the Cairo Synagogue Attic, uh, archaeologists found 200,000 ancient manuscripts. About 10,000 of those are biblical. The largest collection that we have today is known as the Second Firkowicz Collection, 1,500 manuscripts. There's the Antonin Collection, 1,200 manuscripts. The British Museum has over 100. The Bodleian Library collects 100 plus. And then in the United States, we have some, which you can see across seminaries and universities, about 500 manuscripts in total on the Old Testament. And as you may know, the most recent major, uh, major discovery of the Old Testament manuscripts was in 1947. What discovery was that? Do you know? The Dead Sea Scrolls. And we're going to cover that in just a moment. But for now, as an overview, they have found several thousand manuscripts of the Old Testament uh, or others that allude or support it. 3,000 there. So that brings the total manuscript count between 12 to 15,000. The reason why that number varies is because some of these collections have the same manuscript. Okay, they use the same manuscript to count their collection in total. Now, on top of that, of this abundant manuscript evidence that we have for the Old Testament, we also have many other early translations of the Old Testament into different languages or commentaries from rabbis, which give us direct quotes of how the Old Testament was understood in ancient times. The first translation you've probably heard of, known as the Septuagint, originally written in ancient Hebrew and a little Aramaic, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, recorded just after the time of Alexander the Great, which is around 250 BC. Now, what makes the Alex X or the Septuagint so significant is that Jesus and the apostles seem to use it as their translation, because when you read Jesus as he quotes it, he seems to be quoting from the Septuagint. There's other Greek versions in the second century. There was developed... Um, Old Testament versions, such as Aquila's version in 130 AD, um, Theodosian's version, and a bunch of others. So we have a, a lot of other Greek translations as well of the Old Testament. There's also what is known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. So we not only have ancient Greek versions, but also uh, Aramaic and Hebrew version of the Old Testament, except it's just the law, 
Genesis through Deuteronomy because the Samaritans clinged to that more than anything else. There's also Aramaic targums. Targums are paraphrases of the Hebrew scripture into Aramaic. And this began as early as the time of Nehemiah. Now there's also what's known as the Talmud, which in essence is a commentary of the Old Testament from early Jewish rabbis as early as 300 BC. And our copies date around 200 AD. And then last of all, you have what's known as the Midrash, very similar to the Talmud. And this is ancient textual study and interpretation of the Old Testament, which we have of this. Now, what's so awesome about all of this is that if we didn't have any Old Testament manuscripts, we could reconstruct most of the Old Testament from the quotations and the translations of these other versions of the Old Testament. And so there's tons and tons of manuscript data of the Old Testament documents. Listen to this quote by a man named Gleason Archer, who's a scholar and an archaeologist. He says, it should be clearly understood that in this respect, the Old Testament differs from all other pre-Christian works of literature of which we have any knowledge. To be sure, we do not possess so many different manuscripts of pagan productions coming from such widely separated eras as we do in the case of the Old Testament. Now, there's another question that we have to ask concerning the bibliographical test is the time gap, the time gap. And what we mean by that is, what are the earliest manuscript versions that we currently have? And how far removed are they from the original writings? Because that length in gap gives us more accuracy the closer it is to the original time. Because obviously the longer the gap, the more opportunity there is for embellishment and errors to happen as it's copied over and over and over again. Now, in order to get an accurate time gap, we have to divide the Old Testament into several categories and we'll do it Jesus's way, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And here's kind of the average time span that we see. Most scholars agree that the original Pentateuch was recorded around 1450 BC. So we're gonna use that number and date for the first five books of the Bible, along with the book of Joshua as well. King David and King Solomon lived around 1050 to 950 BC. So this is when they would have penned the Psalms and the Proverbs as well as others. So we're gonna date that around 1000 BC on average. And then we have the Babylonian captivity around 600 BC, which is when most of the prophets spoke. And so we're gonna date the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi on average around 600 BC. So with that all rounded off, the earliest group of manuscripts that we possess, which would be the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date as early as the third century BC, 300 BC, and no later than the first century AD would be around 200 year range of dates. So those time gaps, depending on which section of the scripture are going to vary. There's around a 1100 year time gap from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Pentateuch, around a 650 year time gap for David and Solomon's writings and around a 300 year time gap for the prophets. Now that might seem like a long time, but that is a remarkably good time gap considering how old the Old Testament is. But even more importantly, there is no other document in history that has a history of transmission like the Old Testament. The Old Testament was transcribed in such a way that even though we see a thousand years removed from the original writings to what we currently possess, we have an incredible history of scribes and scholars who kept it all together. And so I wanna show you guys something that's pretty significant here. Over the period of several millenniums in Judaism, 
A succession of scholars was charged with standardizing and preserving the biblical text, taking out all possibility of major errors. And there were five major groups of scribes that have existed for the sole purpose of preserving the Old Testament. Starting with a group known as a sophrim, comes from a Hebrew word which means scribes. They were Jewish scholars that were appointed to preserving the Old Testament text word for word and line for line. And they existed around 600 BC all the way through 200 BC. This is about the time of the Babylonian captivity. Very possible that the original documents of the Old Testament still existed back then. We're going to get to that in just a moment. The second group of scribes known as the Zugoth, they replaced the Sophrim at the turn of the century. And their name means pairs because it referred to the pairs of textual Hebrew scholars. And they were assigned the task of preserving the Old Testament between 200 to 1 BC. And then came the Tanaim, and they preserved the text all the way to 200 AD. And these scholars are partially responsible for putting together the Talmud. And their job was to compile centuries of rabbinic teachings based on the biblical text, which in turn would naturally preserve the Hebrew text as well. And then following the Tanaim was the Talmudists, who existed to preserve the text from 100 to 500 AD. And then it closes with the Masoretes, which you've probably heard of, who followed the Talmudists. And they were Jewish scholars that preserved the text all the way to 1000 AD. So we have almost 15, actually over 1500 years of scribes who preserved the Old Testament text for the nation of Israel. But this topic leads us to another question. How do we know that these men preserved the Old Testament in a precise manner? And in order to answer that question, we might want to start with the Masoretes. The Masoretes were the latest group that preserved the text who existed from 500 to 1000 AD. And they were an incredible uh, group of scholars who had the strictest disciplines when copying ancient manuscripts, even down to the detail of what material they used. There's a man by the name of Samuel Davidson who gives us a summary of the discipline that they used in copying Old Testament manuscripts. Listen to what he says. He says that a new scroll must be written on the skins of clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire codex. The ink must be black, cannot be red or green or any other color, and be prepared according to a definite recipe. The authentic copy must be perfect from which the transcriber must not at least, uh, in the least, deviate. No word or letter, not even a yod, must be written from memory. The scribe, not having looked at the codex before him, between every consonant, the space of a hair or a thread must intervene. Between every new section, the breadth of nine consonants, between every book, three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly with the line, but the rest need not do so. Besides this, the scribe must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body before he begins to copy the text, not begin to write the name of God unless the pen is newly dipped in ink. And should a king address him while he is writing that name, he must take no notice of him. The rules in which these regulations are not observed are condemned to be buried in the ground or burned, or they are banished to schools to be used as reading books. That's how they transcribed the Old Testament. It was religious. It was serious. It was extreme. It was even superstitious. 
for these scribes to translate or, or excuse me, transcribe the Bible and to make copies for it. They were only interested in making accurate copies down to the smallest detail. If one detail was missing from a page, they would burn the entire thing and they would start over. F.F. Bruce, who is a biblical scholar, he says the Masoretes were well-disciplined and they treated the text with the greatest imaginable reverence and devised a complicated system of safeguards against scribal slips. They counted, for example, the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurs in each book. They pointed out the middle letter of the Pentateuch and the middle letter of the whole Hebrew Bible and even made more detailed calculations in these. Everything countable seems to be counted, says Wheeler Robinson, and they made up uh, uh, mnemonics by which the various totals might be readily remembered. Pretty incredible. Sir Frederick Kenyon says, besides recording varieties of reading tradition or conjecture, the Masoretes undertook a number of calculations which do not enter into the ordinary sphere of textual criticism. They numbered verses, words, and letters of every book. They calculated the middle word and middle letter of each. And it goes on and on and on. They enumerated verses which contained all the letters of the alphabet or a certain number of them. These trivialities, as we might rightly consider them, had yet the effect of securing uh, minute attention to the precise transmission of the text. And they are but an excessive manifestation of a respect for the sacred scriptures, which in itself deserves nothing but praise. The Masoretes were indeed anxious that not one jot or tittle, not one smallest letter, nor one tiny part of a letter of the law should pass away or be lost. Pretty incredible stuff. It's not only evident by the rules of discipline above that they took their task seriously, but also by the fact that once they had completed copying an Old Testament manuscript, they would burn the one that they were copying from. They were so confident that they copied it 100% with accuracy that they would prefer the new copy over the... Now, even though the Masoretes were extremely critical in transmitting the text with accuracy, as we all know, they were the latest group of scribes to transcribe the Old Testament dating to 900 to 1000 AD. That's, that's the latest, or the, I should say the earliest manuscript of the Old Testament that we possessed from the Masoretes. And for the longest time, that's all the work that we had. And so critics of the Old Testament were always like, hey, we appreciate the Masoretes and what they've done, but your Old Testament, there's no way to verify that it's accurate and that's been transcribed from the previous scholar groups. That is until 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. As you know, an Arab shepherd boy was pursuing a lost goat approximately seven miles south of Jericho. He stumbled into this cave and he found jars. And in these jars contained several leather scrolls. Now, when word got out, the archeologists were all over it and they found 11 caves that produced thousands of Old Testament manuscripts. Complete books of the Old Testament were found, the book of Isaiah being the earliest of those books. Now, what makes these manuscripts incredible to the transmission of our text is that most of them are dated back to as early as 200 BC, which if you recall, is when the first group of Jewish scholars began to copy the Old Testament. These manuscripts are 1,000 years older than the Masoretic text that we first had with only a 5% variation between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text. 
Okay, so these variations, by the way, they're just obvious slips of the pen and they do not take away from the overall meaning of the Old Testament. So in other words, 95% of the text for 1,000 years remained accurate, word for word, line for line, exactly as the Masoretic text. Let me give you an example of a 5% variation here. Um, What does that say? What does that say? That is a 5% variation. Those hashtags is a 5% scribal error. Does that take away any of the meaning of the text? No, none whatsoever. And so we've seen that from the beginning, from the time of the transcription all the way to the Masoretes, this text was transcribed with complete and perfect accuracy. So the next question then is, if we kind of go back one slide, you can see here the Sulphurim, 600 BC to the Masoretes, 95% accuracy in the text. How do we know though that the Sulphurim had an accurate copy of the Old Testament. Because even the Sophrim had to transcribe from something. And this is where King Josiah comes in. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we learn about Hilkiah the priest. He says that he found a law scroll or the law scroll that the Lord had given to Moses tucked away in the treasury of the temple. Now, what law scroll was found? I would argue that it's the original one that was penned by Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 26, it tells us that when Moses finished writing on a scroll the words of this law in their entirety, he commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, take this scroll of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. It will remain there as a witness against you. Real quick, is there a a, uh, Kleenex? I'm sweating up here. I need to wipe my, my noggin. Thank you. The lights. You know, the uh, preachers of old used to have these uh, Kleenexes in their, their uh, what do you call them, the suits? No, wear suits. <laughs> there we go. So Moses is commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 31 to take the law scroll, put it next to the Ark of the Covenant. This is what Hilkiah the priest found. And he gives it to King Josiah to copy and to read in the treasury of the temple. Now here's what's really cool. When did King Josiah reign? He reigned from 640 to 609 BC. It's interesting because when did the first group of scribes begin copying the Old Testament? Look right there, around 600 BC. Within 10 years from what I think were the original manuscripts of the Old Testament, Jewish scribes began copying over the Old Testament word for word, line for line. So in essence, between King Josiah and the Sophrim, there's less than 10 year time gap of accuracy. I appreciate it. That's just going to make me to bring these up to you guys. So our Bible as a whole, not just the Old Testament, as we're going to see, is the most bibliographical proven document in the world. Norman Geisler says, before 1947, the Hebrew text was based on three partial and one complete manuscript dating from about 1000 AD. Now thousands of fragments are available, as well as complete books containing large sections of the Old Testament from one millennium before the time of the Masoretic text. William Green says it may be safely said that no other work of antiquity has been so accurately transmitted as. So this means that our Old Testament that we read today, it's not in any way compromised or inaccurately transmitted, uh, transmitted through these five major groups of Jewish scholars, which means that we have an Old Testament that we can trust when we read it, that it was recorded for us accurately word for word. So there's the bibliographical test. Would you say that it passes that one? I would say so. This brings us to the second major test to 
verify historical reliability. This is known as the internal test. And just as a reminder, now we move from looking at the documents themselves to looking and reading into the documents and the manuscripts. Are they telling the truth? What do they have to say? Now, there's hundreds of internal tests that any given scholar or historian can run on a document, and those tests will depend on what kind of document that they're doing. We obviously don't have time this evening uh, to run through hundreds of tests, but I want to give you two major internal tests that are unique to the Old Testament, which no other ancient document has. And the first one is the testimony of prophecy. The testimony of prophecy. This is one of the most prominent internal tests for the Old Testament. There's many religious books out there that have vague prophecies. Some have come to pass from statistical predictions, but most have fallen short. But there is no book on this planet that contains precise prophecies as diverse and specific and accurate 100% of the time as the Old Testament. Now, since there's hundreds of prophecies, let me just divide this up into these groups here that you see on the screen. The history of nations. The Old Testament has specific prophecies for at least 30 different nations in which what will happen to them in history. Whether they will rise or fall, whether they will be completely destroyed or simply brought to low significance, even against all odds, when great empires seem to be indestructible, the prophecies of the Old Testament happen 100% of the time. But not just that, there's not just the history of nations, but also the sequence of nations. The Old Testament prophesies the order by which each nation would exist. This is clearly represented by Daniel chapter 2. Daniel prophesies that the Babylonian Empire would be taken by the Medo-Persian Empire, and then so on and so forth, to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. I like what Pastor Ben says. You can take an encyclopedia and read it right along Daniel chapter 2, and you're going to see the same historical sequence unfold, except Daniel wrote about them before they happened. Or how about the Messianic prophecies? The Old Testament prophesied specifically, not just of a sequence of nations, but even details concerning the coming Messiah, about the Christ, where he would be born, how he would be born, what lineage he would be from, how he would die, how he would be betrayed, and so forth. And also last day prophecies. We are, as we see, uh, speak, seeing the world transform and go with the flow of what the Old Testament prophecies said would happen especially Daniel chapter 2 with the rise of the next empire. Ezekiel 37 and 38 seem to be knocking on the door. Perhaps one of the most profound end-time prophecies is the unlikeliness that the, Old Test, or, excuse me, that the Gentiles would come to Christ in large quantities, and yet here are all of us. I would imagine most, if not all of us, being Gentiles following the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now leading to another internal test is the testimony of Israel, which is pretty incredible the continual existence of the Jewish people after centuries of dispersal and persecution is unique in human history. It's an eloquent testimony, not only of prophecy, but the accuracy of the Old Testament. God promised that he would not cast away Israel, but would protect them by blessing them and blessing those who bless them and cursing those who curse them. The real estate of the land of Israel is barely on the map, and yet not a single nation can seem to hold on to it very long except for the nation of Israel cannot overlook the fulfillment of prophecy of the reestablishment of Israel in 1948. For 1900 years, they were scattered throughout the world with no official homeland, and yet somehow they still existed as a distinct nation when they were not in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64 tells us that Israel would be scattered 
from one end of the earth to the other. And yet Ezekiel says that they would come back to the land. And we saw that fulfilled just in this last century. Not only do we have specific prophecies about these, but there's even one being fulfilled right now. Isaiah 27 verse 6 says that Israel in the last days would blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now Israel today, even though it's the smallest real estate on the planet, is the third largest fruit exporter in the world. Think about that. And it makes up 25% of the world's flower exports. And this is just two of the internal tests that you could look at to verify that the things that the Old Testament have to say are true, that they come to pass. It's not joking around, it's recording with accuracy the things that it wants to say. It speaks for itself as it were. So suffice it to say here, we've seen it pass the bibliographical test as well as the internal test. There's one final test, and hopefully we have time to go through some of these here. Perhaps one of the most exciting ones is the external test. If you recall, oh, back up here. The external test looks for evidence outside of the documents to see if anybody else has spoken of the same thing. See if they can find anything that corresponds to the events, what the document is claiming that happened. And while there's hundreds of external tests that we could run on the Old Testament tonight, we have time for just one, which is perhaps the most fundamental one, and it's archaeology. You're going to be surprised how much archaeology there is to support the Old Testament. And so let's look at some of these here and, and just kind of enjoy this. This one's known as the Armana Tablets. Dates back to 1400 B.C. To give you an idea, Moses died around that time. This is right before Joshua would lead Israel into Canaan to conquer the land. This was found by a woman in 1887 in Egypt. And it describes what's known as the Habaru, as early conquerors of Canaan. Habru were well known in Mesopotamia by the early second millennium BC. This confirms, according to scholars, what we know about the Canaanites in the Old Testament. As they began to unfold and read this and translate this, they're like, holy cow, these are the Canaanites that this clay tablet is talking about, of which the Old Testament speaks greatly of. The Babylonian Chronicles dates back to 600 BC. It's pretty cool. It describes King Nebuchadnezzar in his first 10 years as king. And we see, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, this corresponds with the book of Jeremiah, as well as the history of 2 Chronicles 36 and 2 Kings chapter 24. Behitzton inscription, this is an extra biblical reference to the Persian victory over Babylon and the rise of Darius I to power, of which Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 5 and Nehemiah also in Nehemiah chapter 12. This dates back to 500 BC. So far, so good. The Belshazzar inscription, discovered in 1854, Bel was the son and co-regent with another ruler in uh, Babylon. It explains why Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 29, considered him the third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon. This inscription gives evidence to that. The black obelisk of Shalamansar, I think is how you say that, the third, <laughs> found in 1800s. It portrays Israel's Jehu of Omri bowing to pay tribute before the king, which is described in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. Pretty cool stuff. So you're seeing these archaeological uh, data begin to line up with the biblical account. The Code of Hammurabi, dated all the way back to 1700 BC. There was criticism that the ancient Jews in Moses' time were too primitive to have advanced laws, even writing. Some have said that, which is ridiculous. Well, this... Uh, this pillar here 
has 282 laws of morality, commerce, and religion, which answers that objection, dating back to that time. How about the cylinder of Cyrus, dated to 500 BC? It's a Persian clay cylinder, and it describes Cyrus's victory, his permission to free worship and to return to the gods of other subcultures to their own land. This corresponds to Isaiah chapter 45 and Ezekiel chapter 1. This one's one of my favorites here. It's known as the Ebla Tablets found in modern-day Syria, dated all the way back to 2300 BC, almost 1,000 years before Moses. It's 15,000 tablets discovered, and the vocabulary lists two different languages, one of them which is distinctly Semitic, which is where the Hebrew language came from. And it contains incantations, proverbs, not, not Solomon's proverbs, but just ancient proverbs, hymns to various deities, but... What's interesting about these tablets is it names the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we find in Genesis chapter 14. The cities of Zeboam, Salem, Megiddo, which is where uh, we see a lot of things happen in uh, the book of Ezekiel. And Salem, of course, which is where Melchizedek is from. Also, Gaza is named. Also of special interest is a word, Yerusalem, uh, which is translated Jerusalem this being the earliest known reference to the city of Jerusalem. Other ancient cities are named as well. Uh, Nahor, Israel, Ishmael, Esau, David, Saul, and Canaan are all found in these Ebla tablets. Now, one significant phrase in these tablets is also discovered, which reads, Yah has mercy on me, and who is like El, speaking of God. It also preserves other pagan names, such as Molech, we read about in the Old Testament. Also, we see a creation account in these Ebla tablets as well, similar to the Genesis account. It speaks of a flood, a worldwide flood, and the Hittites uh, before Abraham. So a lot of really interesting stuff in these Ebla tablets that were discovered. The Gilgamesh epic, dated back to 2000 BC, contains 11 uh, tablets. I'm sorry, tablet 11, I should say, contains a Babylonian version of a worldwide flood, very similar to what we read in the Word of God, showing that the worldwide flood was a historical event, not just for the people of Israel and for ourselves. The Hittite tablets, back to 1750 BC, was discovered in the 1900s with 10,000 other tablets. It consists of laws and codes and legends. But what's interesting about the Hittite tablets is it describes a man named Abraham, who purchased a cave of Machpelah from Ephron the Hittite. <laughs> you can read about that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 20. Okay, this is almost like a receipt of what we see happening in the scripture. House of Yahweh Ostrakon, dated back to 800 BC. This is a clay shard used as a receipt for silver donated to Solomon's temple. This is the earliest archaeological reference to the building of Solomon's. The Karnak inscription, 9th century BC is when it's dated back to. And it depicts Pharaoh's military victories over Rehoboam in the late 10th century BC, which corresponds to 1 Kings chapter 14 and 2 Chronicles chapter 12. It also uh, mentions nine cities found in the Bible, including Gibeon and Megiddo. The Moabite stone, dated back to 840 BC, is found east of the Dead Sea. It records the conflict between King Mesha and Omri, found in 1 and 2 Kings. And it mentions the name of Yahweh, the Nuzi tablets, describes laws and customs and the society that's parallel to the biblical record in the time of Abraham. 
For instance, it describes how a man may adopt a slave or a servant to carry on his name, which is something that we see Abraham talk about in Genesis chapter 15 before he had Isaac as a son. The Taylor prism, dated back to 701 BC, is found in ancient Nineveh, and it records the campaigns of Sennacherib against Judah and Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Cool stuff. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 in 2 Kings chapter 18. Or how about the Tel Dan inscription? It mentions King David as the king of Israel in the house of David. Dated all the way back. This was found in 1993. It also mentions other biblical figures like Jeroam, excuse me, and Ahaziah, found in 2 Kings chapter 8 and 9. Perhaps one of the oldest archaeological finds is known as the Temptation Seal. Dated all the way back to the third millennium BC. The seal shows the temptation narrative found in Genesis chapter 3, you'll note. Showing the account of Adam and Eve, the first humans, shows that this story, this account of the first human beings, were tempted by a snake at a tree. It's pretty incredible. Again, this is dated back to the third millennium BC. This is 1,500 years before Abraham. The Weld Blundell prism, dated back to 2100 BC, lists the Sumerian kings who reigned before what it calls the Great Flood. It's pretty incredible. Also gives the ages of the kings who reigned before the Great Flood, and guess how long they lived? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, just like we read about the people and the, the, the genealogy of Adam and his sons who lived 600, 700, 800 years. So the Holy Scriptures are not the only biblical or historical account that records age-old men just like that. Now recently, these are new things I, I've added to the presentation within the last year. These are recent finds. So these are not just finds that have happened like you know, 50 years ago. We're not finding stuff anymore. We're finding things every single year that correspond to the account of the Bible. And one of the more recent ones is known as the Davidic dynasty symbol, discovered just last September, just a year ago, immaculately preserved 2,700-year-old decorated column heads, which were from the first temple period that indicate a connection to David's uh, day and era. Of course, this would be when Solomon is reigning. This is the royal design that corresponds to the coins that were also found in that time as well. And it's a once-in-a-lifetime discovery, according to some of the archaeologists, uh, of the pillar heads found in the city of David. Recently was found what's known as the inscription of Jerubbabel, okay, which is the, you could call the surname of Gideon, found in the book of Judges. Uh, we had never found another name, or we've never found any other archaeological data for this name Jerubbabel until just last July, of 2021, um, and there it is. It's written right on this pot shard. There's also new Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in March of 2021. Portions of the 12 minor prophets, including Zechariah and Nahum. This is the first discovery of more Dead Sea Scrolls in nearly 60 years. In 2018, we found a clay signature of Isaiah the prophet, which is pretty significant. I love this. It was unearthed as part of an excavation of previously undisturbed pile of debris in Jerusalem. And this small clay seal of authority shows the signature of the prophet Isaiah, who lived during King Hezekiah's reign in the 8th century. The inscription literally says, the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> so that's why we know it's his signature uh, signet there. Now these impressions for context, they were created when the owners of the seals stamped their seal into soft clay, and they were used to sign in to the king or into the kingdom. And so uh, Isaiah had access to King Hezekiah, as we read in the scriptures, and he probably stamped his ring or his signet 
into clay to sign in to go see the king. And this is one of those times. Can you imagine holding that, realizing Isaiah the prophet had touched that uh, many, many years ago? There's thousands and thousands and thousands. I want to close with just a few quotes. In extraordinary ways, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments, corroborating key portions of the stories of Israel's patriarchs, the Exodus, the Davidic monarchy, and the life and times of Jesus. Until the breakthrough of archaeological discoveries, the stories about the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were subject to considerable skepticism. This, of course, is a secular historian saying this. But in the last 30 years, however, a steadily increasing flow of materials from Mesopotamia and Syria, Palestine, from Mari, from Nuzi, from Ale- uh, thanks, Siri, has convinced all except a few holdovers of the authenticity of the patriarchal narratives. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controversial controverted biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And just one more here. The Bible is supported by archaeological evidence again and again. On the whole, there can be no question that the results of excavation have increased the respect of scholars as a collection of historical documents. The confirmation is both general and specific. Wow. 25,000 archaeological finds have been discovered concerning the Bible, and not a single one contradicts the Word of God. And so this is the Old Testament book that we have today, which we can historically trust and rely on. As we've learned, it's been preserved like no other book in history, maybe besides the New Testament. In terms of its preservation, its accuracy, its historical reliability, there is no other document of antiquity that we can trust more in the Old Testament, with one exception, as I said, which is the New Testament, which we're going to talk about on Sunday morning. Looking forward to it. All right, I just unloaded a ton of information on you, so I'm going to pray and allow you to just simmer and walk out the doors a little brain dead after that, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your loving grace. Lord, this really is a testimony that you have fully intended to preserve your word for us. There's no reason to doubt it. There's no reason to be concerned that what we read is truth. We're so thankful for that, Lord. You didn't have to uh, give us such a plenitude of, of evidence, and yet you have. I pray, Lord, that what we've learned tonight would have boosted our, our faith and encouraged our hearts and cast away any doubt that we may have had and perhaps even equipped us, Lord, to talk to somebody who has questions concerning these things. Lord, I do pray that it would give us a fresh perspective and understanding. of. We love you so much, Jesus, and we thank you for this time that we've had. We pray that you would come quickly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.